In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Whenever you hear someone tell the big story of the Bible, the grand narrative of all scripture, the section that probably gets the least attention, at least proportionally to its length, is the time of the kings. It kind of gets summed up as Saul, then David, then Solomon, and then everything takes a sharp turn for the worst and people go into exile. It's not the worst summary, but to give it a little bit more detail, after the reign of Solomon, the 12 tribes fractured into a northern and southern kingdom, Israel and Judah respectively. And while there were a few kings in Judah who followed God and kept his commandments, the rulers of Israel were just one bad king after another. The book of Kings, really one book, although we have it split into two parts in our Bibles, it's about the destruction of Israel and Judah because of the failures of their leaders. For example, our reading today comes during the reign of Jehoram, of whom it is said, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he removed the pillar of Baal and that his father made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, which he caused Israel to commit, and he did not depart from it. Again, just varying shades of bad. It's in this context of failed kings of Israel that we get the prophetic ministry of Elijah and his successor, Elisha. And in between these accounts of unrighteous kings, there are these miracle accounts, stories of God's provision and faithfulness to his people. This morning, we read of a Shunammite woman. She notices that Elisha frequently passed going by, so she set up a place for him to stay in her home. We're told that she is wealthy, but learned that she had no son, and her husband was old. And so at this point in her life, she probably had come to terms with the fact that she wouldn't have children, and she was facing the dim prospects as a soon-to-be widow without children or husband to take care of her. The story takes place over several years. It includes the promise of a child who was then born, who grows old enough to be helping out in the fields, falls ill, dies, and is miraculously brought back. But I want to take a moment to zoom in and look at some of the particulars of these miracles. First, there's how faith plays into them all. It's easy to think that faith is a prerequisite for miracles to occur, After all, in the Gospels, Jesus criticized the disciples for being unable to cast out demons because of their lack of faith. Frequently, he says, go, your faith has made you well. But here, the Shunammite woman, like Sarai before her, is skeptical and dismissive of the promise of a child, saying, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not deceive your servant. It sounds like the reply of someone who has dealt with disappointment long enough that hoping for a miracle is just too much. She just can't bear it. But the skepticism is not really addressed by the narrator as good or bad. It simply is. The very next verse reads, The woman conceived and bore a son at that season in due time, as Elisha had declared to her. But later, when her child is dying, she displays faith and is persistent in pursuing Elisha to heal him, overruling her naysaying husband. Elisha responds, But it isn't as if he is fully confident about what's going to happen next. In verse 27, we read Elisha saying, The Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. We love our miracle stories to have prophets wheeling semi-phenomenal, nearly cosmic power with confidence and swagger, like Elijah calling down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. You might recall he has them wet that altar a number of times because he's confident. He knows what's going to happen. But in this case, we have a few people, the woman and the prophet, both figuring it out as they go. To be clear, it's not as if faith is unimportant. 
It is the faith that this woman shows that gets her commended in Hebrews 11, that list of exemplars of the faith, which tells of women who receive children back in resurrection. We just recognize that God's miraculous work isn't the polar express. It's not powered by our faith. As a brief disclaimer, I actually haven't read the Polar Express. I'm pretty sure that metaphor works, but I'm sorry if it doesn't. I think you get my point. The other mechanicals are curious as well. At first, Elisha sends his servant Gehazi to place his staff on the child. That doesn't work. It reminds me a little bit of when Jesus heals a man born blind at Bethsaida in Mark 8. He first puts mud on the man's eyes, and the man gains back some sight, but everything still looks like shadows and fuzzy shapes. And so Jesus lays his hands on him to finish the job, as it were. Most miracles we read about in scripture are instantaneous, but then there are these exceptions where the miracles are a kind of process. Well, Elisha arrives, and first he closes the door and prays by himself. We don't have recorded the content of the prayer, but I assume he prayed both to intercede for the child and to listen for what to do next. He's not proceeding with a full plan ahead of him, He's just doing the next thing he knows to do and asking God what to do after that. While the story continues, Elisha lays on the boy. The boy wakes up, sneezes seven times, and then is okay. So what do we make of all this? Well, we can compare and contrast the miracles to other miracles in Scripture, but it doesn't do us much good in order to decipher some sort of predictable pattern. We can't generalize and derive methodology for how God heals on command, because we aren't supposed to. We're supposed to see that God does intervene, see that God is faithful, and stand back amazed that he does it. Again, this miracle is one of a series of miracles packed together in between significant political events in the book of Kings. So right in the midst of Kings failing to be righteous and follow Yahweh rightly, leading the nation into sin and on a path that would result in exile, even in the midst of all of the mess, Yahweh's persistent love for his people remains constant. There would eventually be consequences for the leaders and consequences for the people, but God never abandons them. It isn't about how do we do it. We don't read the miracle stories and say, how can we be like Elisha and also perform a miracle? The title of this sermon and the main theme that I want to hammer home is, it isn't about you. Let me explain a little bit by way of our New Testament readings. In 1 Corinthians, we find Paul defending his ministry to the church in Corinth. I don't think it's going out too far on a limb to say that, based on all we know about Paul, he seems to have a bit of an ego. He, perhaps his besetting sin is pride. But his reputation isn't the point here. Paul is commending a disposition to the Corinthians. And so when he defends his ministry, he isn't trying to sort of humble brag about how he wasn't getting paid to preach the gospel. Paul owes everything to Christ, who saved him from sin and from himself. And Paul says that he works because he was commissioned. He points out that he doesn't take every advantage that is his by right, not because he wants accolades or wants to guilt the Corinthians, but because he thinks doing so, pointing it out, says something about who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and what it looks like to follow Christ. This is where Paul's words on freedom come into play. For Paul, and any number of theologians of the church after him, Freedom in Christ isn't an open-ended freedom to choose for ourselves whatever we would like. Freedom in Christ is freedom for the other. It's freedom from sin but being a slave to Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom that the gospel brings, is what allows Paul to be all things to all people. 
So when he talks about becoming a Jew to win over Jews, becoming as one under the law to win those under the law, becoming weak so that he might win the weak, he isn't trying to boast about his ability to contextualize the message. Because Paul isn't God's gift to the weak and those under the law. God is God's gift to those people. Paul is free to adapt and become whatever he needs to be in order to be a mirror reflecting the gospel of Jesus to whomever needs to hear it. Paul recognizes that he isn't the point. It's not about him. And we're not all called to preach the gospel in the same manner that Paul did or perform miracles like Elijah and Elisha. But we all have a call to serve and follow in the way of Christ. And that call isn't for us or about us. Our call and commission as the body of Christ is for others and about Jesus. The church isn't about bringing together people who love each other so that we can be supports for each other. We're called to come together and point each other to Jesus, to get out of the way, get out of our own way, so that Jesus can draw us nearer to him and use us as useful idiots for his kingdom. I want to close by looking at our reading from Mark's gospel, which takes place close to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now we see some activity that's familiar to us. Jesus is performing miracles, healing people, and preaching. Miracles and preaching pretty much make up most of Jesus' ministry from beginning to end, and without specifics about the miracles or the preaching, we might gloss over them quickly. But take a pause and notice a few things. In verse 35, Jesus goes out alone to pray. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus only does this two other times. Both of those times, it's near a crisis. And this isn't central to the point I'm trying to make this morning, but if all you took from this sermon is that... Um, hold on, my page printed twice. <laughs> if all that, that you got from this sermon was a renewed sense of the importance of solitary prayer in the face of big decisions, then I think I would have done an all right job. You could forget everything else and it would be okay. But Jesus is about to face a crisis. We might ask ourselves, what is the crisis that Jesus is about to face here? He's just at the start of his ministry. He's gaining popularity. What could be going wrong? Well, the popularity is exactly the problem. Remember that one of the ways Jesus was tempted in the desert was for the kingdoms of the world to be handed over to him. What was his by right, but not given in the right way. And here at the start of his ministry, Jesus is drawing massive crowds. Popularity can be one heck of a drug, and getting accolades for the wrong reasons can redirect you into a ministry that's built on the feedback loop of those accolades. The disciples are confused. Why is Jesus going out by himself? Peter says, everyone's looking for you. Everyone loves you. Give the people what they want. The miracles may have drawn crowds, but as Deacon Joy pointed out last week, it was Jesus' teaching that was so impactful. That is what Jesus says to his disciples when they come to find him, that he had to go to neighboring towns to proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. Jesus' message was the kingdom of God was near, so repent and believe in the gospel. The miracles were the signs to point to who Jesus was and the kingdom that was coming. The problem is that it's so easy to mistake the signs for the things that the signs point to. Miracles are what people want. Miracles are what people like, but Jesus knew what they needed. Don't get me wrong, the miracles aren't just metaphors for the forgiveness of sins. After all, Jesus describes his own ministry by reading from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But that would look a little bit different than how people expected. 
Jesus would be a different kind of Messiah than what people wanted. They knew firsthand their oppression. They knew what it was like to not be able to worship how they wanted and to be under Roman rule. They knew where they felt their hurt, but they wanted the wrong thing to fix the problem. They were like dehydrated people at sea begging to drink salt water. And the demonic testimony to who Jesus truly was would only have driven the people further into a frenzy to name him as their king right then, which is likely one of the reasons why he did not permit the demons to speak. The people had to see what kind of Messiah he was, one who came to save them from sin, not just Roman oppressors. He would be a faithful king in a manner that the Israelite kings had not been, one whose righteousness would lead the people closer to God. The theme that I see through all of our readings this morning is that our eyes have to be directed towards God, not towards us, not towards our own gifts, not to how we might manufacture miracles, great or small, or to bring blessings to others. Everything has to redirect back to God, the one who loves us enough to heal us, although sometimes addressing deeper needs than we thought we had, who does want us to have faith, although is never bound to our faith before acting. In living out our call as Christians, it can be very easy to make us and the ways God might use us and does use us to bless others as the point, to cling to our own sense of self-importance, our own need to be the protagonist of the story and to have control. We can't try to strong-arm God's work or shortcut faithfulness because we think we know what's best. We must look for ways to be faithful, not in ways that bring attention to ourselves, but in ways that bring others to Christ and to recognize that sometimes we don't get to see how our faithfulness will be used for God's glory. All we get is the next step. It's not about you, it's not about me, and it's not even about all souls. Our church exists not for its own sake, but to serve the kingdom of God, which calls us all to repent, turn from our sins, and look to Christ. And so as we prepare for Lent, thinking through the disciplines we might take up or the habits we might give up, May it all direct our hearts away from the siren's call of being the ones to control the narrative and instead work towards an attitude of open-handedness to see that in our patient waiting, our faithfulness often looks like nothing more than taking one next step. But in doing so, we're taking those next steps following God. We will see God do incredible things for his glory, not for ours. Amen.